Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. We have the entire band here today, all uh, four uh, Radio Survivors, principals of the Radio Survivor Radio and Blog Empire. We're, we're glad to welcome Jennifer Waits in San Francisco. Hello, Jennifer. Hello. Uh, Matthew Lassar in another location in San Francisco. Hello. <laughs> and of course, Eric Klein, who is in the in the city of Portland, as am I, but also in another location. Welcome, Eric. Such an exciting way to uh, to spend a December day. And I want to re- welcome our special guest back for uh, we've quit counting his appearances, but we're very uh, lucky to have him, uh, Professor Christopher Terry from the University of Minnesota. Great to be here. Very special episode and all. <laughs> it's a very special episode. Well, it's holiday time, right? So, I mean, Mario Lopez uh, couldn't make it. Um, Stop. He, Stop. He, they, are they paying in. you to talk about his programming? <laughs> Stop it. They're not. Yeah, no No, no, for, no unearned media time no for, any, for media. these brands, no so, matter how much you uh, love them. We, we will, this, there will be no Hallmark moments. Anyway. But, um, but nevertheless, we're here because... Goodness, uh, there's a lot happening in in the world of the Federal Communications Commission as we sit here um, at, with an imminent change of executive administration. That, of course, brings in changes. But then uh, as well, you know, we have a case that we've been following for a very long time about ownership rules uh, with a group of public interest advocates led by the Prometheus Radio Project challenging FCC ownership rules. Well, that's going to the Supreme Court, so we'll also be be covering on that uh, today. Not only that, Paul, uh, but it appears as though the lame duck president, uh, Donald Trump, threw a bomb at the FCC that'll have long-term implications for the Biden administration. Yeah, so let's talk about this. So, you know, we have a, a new administration coming in uh, with President uh, Joe Biden, and the uh, the administration, the party that's in charge of the executive, um, they have the opportunity to nominate the uh, the, the three majority uh, of the FCC commission, right? So there's uh, five. Uh, there are five commissioners on the FCC who make all the big decisions uh, by a vote. Uh, three from the party in charge. It will be the Democratic Party come uh, January twentieth, um, and then two from the minority party. And uh, recently, uh, President Trump fired. One of the Republican uh, commissioners uh, uh, and then has uh, very quickly pushed through uh, the Senate his replacement. And um, this is notable. Uh, one, it's a little unusual to have, have this happen uh, in this way. I don't know how often FCC commissioners get fired. Uh, how often does that happen? Well, it's, it's not accurate to say he got fired. Um, His term was up. Uh, President Trump, by him, I mean Michael O'Reilly, who's been on the commission for some time. His term was actually as an FCC commissioner was up and he was still in his seat pending a new nomination. President Trump had actually renominated Michael O'Reilly to the GOP side and then pulled his nomination in favor of the person who is now confirmed by the Senate and on the FCC for a full term. And that's Nathan Symington from the NTIA. And, and what is the NTIA? Uh, well, it's the organization in the United States that gives advisory opinions about the Internet that doesn't actually do any regulation. Okay. So um, 
the story, of course, here is about Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act and the debate that's broken out over that. President Trump, even as late as today, is still pushing the idea that Section 230 needs to be uh, repealed. Section 230, as part of the Communications Decency Act, is uh, uh, an amendment to the act that was passed when James Exxon was carrying around his blue boulder, blue folder full of pornography on the Senate trying to regulate Internet porn. That's uh, 25 years ago, right? Yeah, 20, 1996. It's part of the Telecommunications Act, ironically enough. Um But uh, President Trump's been trying to push a reform for that. Section 230 provides immunity to websites for content that is posted by third parties. So if I go to Facebook and I make a defamatory content uh, comment about Matthew down there, um, he can sue me, but not Facebook for having carried that. And that's what 230 does functionally. And 230 protects an awful lot of speech online. In fact, it's only ever been penetrated in court one time. Um, and then there is one narrow exception to 230 liability for platforms. Uh, that is the FOSTA bill, which made it uh, um, it took away the the immunity for websites that host content related to uh, um, sex trafficking and prostitution ads. But what happened is, is President Trump's been on this 230 rampage for a long time, and um, he actually it's, had it's like the his NT- stick. It's his stick to beat the big tech with when they right. uh, when when they quote unquote censor him. Yes, but I mean it affects everybody. Even you guys are potentially liable for content that you don't that gets posted to Radio Survivor. You're potentially liable for it, um, even if I wrote it. Right? If two thirty isn't there, two thirty doesn't. Two thirty is often portrayed as protecting big tech, and that's certainly true. But it protects everybody who has a website. That's right. That's right. I'm I'm sure certain that over the last ten years we would have been sued by at least a couple of people if it wasn't for if wasn't for Section two thirty. Yeah, I mean, uh, multiple websites would have gotten any time there would be any sort of objectionable content posted by anybody. They would have been sued. You know, it's it's easy to sue me for defamation, but you're not going to get a lot out of me. But if you sue Facebook for defamation I did on Facebook, well, that's potentially a pretty good payday, right? You do that a couple hundred thousand times, you're going to you know cash it in. So 230 functionally protects a lot of speech online. President Trump, um, back in the spring, he had the NTIA file a formal petition with the FCC to revisit the FCC's authority on Section 230. And what that petition basically says is that we really need to get rid of 230, right? And that the FCC should be in charge of regulating content online, much in the way it would have been able to do in the 70s and early 80s for broadcast content. Uh, Very similar approach. Well, Michael O'Reilly, who was the FCC commissioner at the time that this occurred, um, he he took a rather principled stand. And I don't agree with O'Reilly on a lot, his, his actions on pirate radio, and I don't see eye to eye on very much. But O'Reilly did take a fairly principled stand, and he said that this was a terrible idea to get the FCC authority to do this, or even to suggest that the FCC would have that authority. And uh, Trump, President Trump, pulled his nomination and sent up Nathan Symington, who is at least partially the author of the petition that started this dispute at Mm. the FCC. 
And why it's a real bomb that Symington is on the commission is he is absolutely pro uh, FCC content regulation. But the other Republican commissioner, Brendan Carr, who will be a carryover into the next administration, absolutely wants the FCC to have the power to get rid of uh, Internet content that he doesn't like. He has made no qualms about that. That is not a rhetorical statement. It is not an accusation. He has said it exactly like that multiple times. And you're going to have a really bad situation going into the next year because to get the third Democratic commissioner on the commission, you're going to need to get that nomination through the U.S. Senate. And the U.S. Senate didn't put Nathan Symington in there in a last-minute fire sale in an effort to make that job any easier. So what we're looking at to get back to sort of the basic question here is that in this after the transition in a few weeks, um, what we'll have is uh, uh, Commissioner Rosenworcel, whose term is also about to expire, by the way, will be the nominal head of the agency until a Biden appointee is confirmed by the Senate. But in the meantime, the FCC will be deadlocked two to two uh, until someone is sent up and approved by the Senate. And I don't know if you've paid attention, but Mitch McConnell, who is the Senate Majority Leader and in charge of how the Senate does business, has not been, uh, what's the uh, correct term here, functional in uh, <laughs> putting uh, Democratic nominees into positions. Right. When, and, when Barack uh, Obama was president and Mitch McConnell was in charge of the Senate, uh, there was a lot of uh, Democratic appointees to a lot of political bodies that were blocked. And that was... Now that feels like another lifetime. It seems as though you know, uh, it, you know we we've seen the Republicans who control the Senate keep keep the Supreme Court seat vacant for an entire year. Uh, it seems like anything's possible now. Things can uh, cabinet positions across the board, including the FCC that we're talking about today, might remain empty for quite some time. It, it's a uncertain. Well, I mean, Chris. it goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. I mean, Merrick Garland was kept out of the Senate seat. Then, or I mean, the, the Supreme Court seat by, by the Senate never holding a vote. It's not hard to see how the, any sort of obstruction, and of course, the, there's lots of cabinet secretaries that are going to want to get confirmed long before we get an FCC commissioner. I have a and, question for you, Chris, and that's about, about, the, uh, about Section 230. What's the spectrum of opinion about Section 230 in the Democratic Party? I know that there are some portions of the liberal left that are also critical of Section 230, right? Frequently, the problem on the left with 230 is just a simple not understanding of what 230 actually does. Um, 230 protects some pretty bad speech. Let's, I mean, there's no two ways about that. And there's a lot of that speech that a lot of people would like to see go away. But the First Amendment protects an awful lot of that speech. But what 230 does is it basically creates a First Amendment situation in a place where the First Amendment doesn't apply, and that's on private platforms. By giving the private platforms the immunity to carry some of that speech, all of which is basically protected speech, um, you've provided them an incentive to allow a lot of speech to occur online. It, it is not an understatement to say if that liability goes away, you're going to see a drastic shift in the amount of speech that's available and the amount of communication that can occur on the Internet because the danger is just too real for the platforms. And we have an empirical example of this, and that was when FOSTA was passed early in President Trump's term. 
immediately websites took content down for fear that they would, having lost that immunity, that the government would come after them and that they would be potentially liable in civil matters too. And there's a case pending next year. I'm certainly, I'm certain we'll talk about it when it, when it uh, has happened, will be next summer. That's the Woodhall Foundation uh, brought a challenge, constitutional challenge to uh, the FOSTA bill that got tied up on an issue of standing that all that went up to the DC circuit court of appeals, but is now back at these uh, at the district level for a trial on the constitutional aspects of it. And that's going to be a really interesting case, especially in the midst of this 2.30. But the immediate danger to 2.30 is that when the commission meets in January, Ajit Pai will still be on the commission when they have their final January meeting, which is not not all that common for a, in a transition year, by the way. Um, you now have two very serious votes to vote to um, approve FCC authority to revisit 2.30. And you're likely to have Ajit Pai leave us a going away present in a third vote that would give the FCC the authority to reinterpret Section 230 in a way that would functionally undermine it without actually re- uh, repealing it. And there's a lot of people, uh, certainly in my line of work, who think that that's the case. But one, I mean, if you want to think about it in in how realistic terms we're talking about here, I've had people from as diverse as the American Enterprise Institute reach out to me to join up to me, with me on opposing these sorts of actions. Mm. I, I co-authored a comment in the docket on the petition with uh, Dan Lyons from AEI. I mean, so you, you've got some to answer your question in two ways. One, you have an immediate threat to 230 that the FCC is going to put on, on there. But you also have a really diverse group of people uh, from a lot of different backgrounds who are very concerned about what this means functionally. You're going to undermine sort of a lot of content online if this is allowed to proceed. And it looks very much like we're going to get a vote in January to let this proceed right as Ajit Pai is about to uh, ride off into the sunset. Hmm. And so just to kind of reset for everyone to understand the Section 230, you know, it's it's interesting that something with with the title, the, the catchy title of Section Two Thirty, has become such, uh, you know, is, is become much more well known, especially amongst people who you know who follow politics, and and it because indeed uh, the current resident of the White House has 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 been tr- tweeting about it and 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 bringing much more attention to it. But you know, Section Two Thirty provides that that protection to whether it's a Twitter or Facebook or a radio survivor or your local community radio station that has a blog on their site. Um, Protection in the case that they're uh, a third party, which could be well, a listener, could be you know it's it's any any person besides the organization publishes something which which brings about uh, a challenge of, of some sort. Could be as you mentioned uh, something like defamation. Um, it could be regarding copyright law. If someone were to were to just simply post a photo they did not have uh, the permission to post, and the owner of that copyright chose to go after that website because they happen to allow someone to upload an image. And right? I suppose somebody could uh, do that maliciously to your website and and then all of this could happen, which is absolutely terrifying that you could have haters out there who want to bring you down by posting comments on your website that could get you in trouble. Yeah, Getty exactly. images and posted so, to the comment section. Right. I mean, and so, you know, if, if, the, if the Section 230 is either is watered down, as, as it seems like the FCC might do, um, then uh, it seems like all the gloves would be off. And it's, it's ironic, of course, because uh, the movement from uh, 
to, to repeal 230 or to modify 230 is coming from ostensibly, uh, you know, the conservative uh, wing here, you know, the same party and the same sort of political uh, sector that, that opposed the fairness doctrine, right, which was extant in, in through to the 1980s, uh, which gave the FCC the, op- the, the, the ability to uh, regulate uh, the expression of views in broadcast media, uh, requiring there be ostensibly fairness. And I know I'm going to give it the, the, the most simplistic gloss of saying, you know, that if there's an appearance by, uh, you know, roughly a Republican or, or, or even if you say two sides of an issue in local politics, uh, you know, in an editorial position on the nightly news, if, if the pro uh, you know, side uh, had an opportunity to speak, then the con side, uh, the side opposing a particular issue, should also be allowed to speak. And, and they greatly opposed that uh, and opposed it on, on sort of free speech grounds that the FCC should not uh, be tangling in such quarters. So it's sort of ironic to, to be asking uh, the FCC to, to, to insert itself back in and to start regulating uh, online content, which, of course, has been um, otherwise not specifically regulated. Well, how much of well, this is based on a legend? And the legend is, is that President Trump lost the election because of Facebook and Twitter and things like that. And now Facebook and Twitter need to be reined in and punished. How much of this is how much of that legend is fueling this particular um, initiative? Well, it's certainly more gas on the fire than fuel in the tank. In this case, um, President Trump has wanted to do something about defamation law since before he was President Trump. Mm-hmm. And 230, certainly a larger part of that. But the 230 debate predates the election by a long time. Um, This has been a debate that's been raging for many years. And frankly, the law is kind of old. You know, it, it might be time to revisit it. The problem, of course, is that it's very hard to thread the needle the way 230 actually does. If you put a proposal into place... Um, that allows for regulation of speech, you run into the First Amendment. And the alternative is to do nothing uh, or to have nothing, and then you're going to lose a lot of speech that way. So there's a lot of, there's been a lot of proposals, but I, as someone who knows just a wee bit about all of this, uh, I have yet to see one that will actually pass all of, the, all of the hoops that it would have to pass to replace 230. But your fairness doctrine uh, metaphor there, comparison, is actually uh, fairly apt, except it doesn't really go far enough. Um, part of the argument that conservatives are making in favor of 230 repeal is that certain platforms are censoring them or there's an, at least the uh, understanding or the, uh, the uh, belief that they're being censored. But if 230 goes away, an, an astounding amount of content, both liberal and conservative, is going to disappear from the web overnight. Right. I mean, just, I mean it, it seems gone. to me – that that you know, President Trump himself, or ex President Trump, shall we say, you know, has as because he's shown this pattern of of making what many could interpret to be defamatory statements about all sorts of people, could himself find you know online in particular find himself the subject of of a suit, uh, you know, and and whether or not the suit would be. Um, would be successful, it, it kind of always doesn't matter as much as that the, the filing of the suit, bringing someone to court to have to, to have to fight a defamation claim in and of itself is, is, of course, a bother. And if you are somebody with, with fewer resources, can be, can be potentially uh, financially uh, threatening. Certainly. Um, the problem, of course, is that President Trump can still be sued 
for defamatory statements that he makes. The medium which carries his message, though, would also be potentially liable for President Trump's statements absent 230. And I mean, there, there's no debate on this. When FOSTA was passed, which was the first, and it is a razor-thin cut of 230's broad immunity provisions. Right, and that's the one that that, that, that targets uh, sex sex work and and, right. uh, well, and, 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 and attempts to, uh, to sort of stem sex trafficking in particular, correct? Right. What was used to, uh, the idea behind FOSTA was to get rid of Backpage.com, which was sort of a notorious website for prostitution ads, except the government managed to shut Backpage.com down before FOSTA was put into place. But what happened was websites that actually were designed to help people get out of sex trafficking situations took down their content lest they face liability for having that kind of content up. And... In the first week after FOSTA was gone along, there's been some some research that suggests maybe as ni- maybe as 90 websites that didn't have anything to do with sex trafficking other than to help people get out of sex trafficking situations um, were taken down just for fear of it. So that case, the, the 230 case that will really matter in the courts is the Woodhull Foundation uh, versus – it'll be versus the new attorney general um, – whoever that ends up being, that'll be the official name of the case. But it, it goes to trial um, in the uh, D.C. Uh, District Court uh, in June. Uh, I, have a, so. I have a question for you, which is about um, the possible road bumps to the FCC's action around Section 230. There is always the good old Administrative Procedures Act, which suggests that um, that a precipitous decision was made by the FCC that wasn't based in explaining itself very well. Is that a potential way of, 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 of stopping this? Sure. Um, but the thing is, is that the APA requires that there be a formal proceeding here. What we're going to get out, what's very likely to happen in a few weeks, is that we're going to get an advisory opinion on how 230 should be interpreted. That isn't bound by the APA. The FCC can do that with a majority vote without very much of a proceeding at all. And Commissioner Carr, to the guy's credit, he absolutely 100% believes that he should, he as an FCC commissioner should have the right to get rid of speech on the internet he hates. He has said so many, many times, maybe not quite so uh, explicitly, but certainly he is a big proponent of giving the FCC back this power. It is a hilarious thing. Uh, uh, One of the points I made in the comment that I filed, and I think doesn't get talked a lot about in this debate, is can you imagine an FCC, the resources the agency would need to police speech on the online? I mean, if you go back and look at broadcast indecency, they didn't, I mean, they, they only ever brought 113 fines for broadcast indecency. In yeah, there's the no monitoring. System. It's all complaint driven, right? And right. they can't, so, and they can't manage the, uh, the sort of unlicensed broadcasters in New York, Boston, New Jersey, Florida, right? right? But they're going to take internet comments about comments about content that people don't like and process all of those. I mean, it's, it's astounding the scale you're talking about. Whether you think it's a good idea or not, it's not a practical idea at all. And it's a terrible right. idea to, to direct FCC resources to it. Unless you're going to build a China-style Great Wall. I mean, essentially, right? Unless you're sort of going to build in some kind of automated filtering to all uh, U.S. Internet, which is effectively how China manages um, right. its online censorship and and, uh, and regulating speech, I say in quotes, 
um, it, you know, right, to have humans do it seems to be a completely nearly impossible task, you know, as seen by by whatever you think of the attempts of Twitter or Facebook to try and uh, weed out some of the most extreme um, uh, online content. They have a hard time doing it, and it's and it's also a really crappy job <laughs> for the people who are subjected to it because right. they often have to be subjected to, to content that is, that is often very disturbing. Some incredible um, articles and, about the post-traumatic stress disorder syndrome yeah. inflicted on the low-wage workers who had to you know, filter awful content off Facebook. Yeah, and you know, I'm, list- I'm a First Amendment guy. I've, I have looked at some of the worst speech in American history in great detail, but I, that job scares me. Like I, it makes my blood run cold to think of how terrible that job would be. Yeah, <laughs> just astounding. So you're listening to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. As we close out 2020, here we're taking a look at what's the the really vital issues in front of the Federal Communications Commission um, as we end up the year, start the next, and of course have a change in executive administration. Helping us through this is Professor Christopher Terry from the University of Minnesota, whose voice you just heard. Also joining us is uh, Radio Survivor's own Matthew Lassar. Uh, who teaches history at the University of California at Santa Cruz. Also, we have Jennifer Waits from San Francisco, our college radio expert, but an expert in so many more things, and Eric Klein, who, who, in addition to producing, very ably edits every episode of our show. My name is Paul Reismandel, and I wanted to kind of bring us, take that section 230, right, the, 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 uh, the section of the Communications Decency Act, which provides this sort of, uh, some some degree of immunity to to online platforms for responsibility f- of of things posted by a third party, and kind of bring it back to to why this this could be should be concerned particularly to people who who uh, care about community media, who care about grassroots media, you know, who are who are concerned about you know democratic communication. So so who may also be like, well, I don't care for Facebook. I don't use Facebook. I don't care for Twitter. I don't use Twitter. Yeah, have you but, seen you know, how bad YouTube can be? The terrible things, right? right? Or, or even I don't care about YouTube. You know, forget Google, forget Facebook, the big tech companies. You know, I don't care. But you know, maybe big fans of 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 a community radio station or podcasting, because one of the things here I note is that a lot of community radio stations have found their way into podcasting not only by distributing, say, their on-air programs online, but by using that as, as a new channel, right, to, to invite in local producers because they have resources like studios and microphones and, and, and training uh, to allow community groups and, and, and local producers to train up and learn how to podcast and release programs that are exclusively online but under basically the imprimatur of, of the community radio station. And to me, I say, wow, I mean, they're effectively third parties, right? And and you know, and I'm certain that you know, just like with community radio on 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 the air, or college radios, I think the same things are happening at college radio stations. Um, you know, it's probably impossible for them to do some thorough review of every episode that might that might hit hit the internet. Chris, am I are my concerns? Uh, am I am I out of my mind with this concern? Uh, do I have a tinfoil hat on here? No, not at all, because what you're talking about is any content that's posted to a website by a third party uh, makes the people who own the website potentially liable without 230 for that content. So we run an episode of Radio Survivor where I make some controversial comments about our new FCC commissioner, and somebody says something defamatory about the commissioner. You're 
you know, you become responsible for that comment, whether you made it or not, because Mm -hmm. you're hosting the platform. And to take it back to your community media question, one thing that I don't think people understand is that, yes, 230 does protect these big platforms. There's no question about that. But those big platforms allow a lot of people to talk. But there's a lot of forums where you have a small group of people who that might be their primary, especially in the age of COVID, that might be their primary form of contact to each other. And those things are in the open on a website that maybe 25 or 30 people look and look at. The people who run that board or that website or that discussion platform, whatever, whatever, whatever it is, they're not going to be able to risk having that stuff in the open anymore. Right. It, they just can't do it because if somebody signs up and makes a defamatory content comment, then the website then becomes liable immediately for that comment. Chris, right? does that apply so, to, to hosting services? I'm just kind of extrapolating all of this and think about how podcasts are distributed on different services. So right. as a service provider, are you then liable for all the podcasts that you host? Absolutely. Right. SoundCloud, where you guys post Radio Survivor um, and make it available after it, it airs. Um, they're liable for the content that you post to their platform, right? So they're going to have to do one of two things. Stop letting you post it or moderate everything. And there's no in between there, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are, you know, the internet works really good when everybody can speak. Problem is, is that everybody can speak. Mm -hmm. But what happens is if that 230 immunity goes away, right, that... All of these people are going to get cut off from these platforms where the, an unbelievable amount of communication is occurring. The Internet would look fundamentally different today if it weren't for Section 230. That is not an overstatement. There is tons of evidence to support that idea. That the Internet that everyone enjoys evolved largely in part because in 1996, when we were still dialing up AOL with the little disc that came in the mail that we made fish sculptures out of, that... Um, Those protections that got provided, which were a direct result of the era which preceded them, um, in that case, uh, both uh, Prodigy and CompuServe, as well as AOL, had defamation claims brought against them, right? 230 was designed to make sure that didn't happen anymore so that there could be a growth of the web. And the web grew up with 230 protection. It'll be a a radical restart, far more than the concern over net neutrality, right? As, As many times as I came on and talked about the problems of losing net neutrality in Title II regulation where 230 is actually a bigger deal. So it where, really is. I'm wondering now where the speech is going to go. Are we going to see a resurgence of underground newspapers, pirate radio, um, cell phone, communication? Well, only, or member-only kind of websites that are where, yeah. where, where, you, where it's, you can't get on you know, and you might have to know the secret password and, and, uh, and the handshake, the virtual yeah, but handshake. That, but, but that keeps the – but that – in communication theory terms, that makes for even more closed loops than we have in an already polarized environment if all the people you're talking to are part of the group, right? I love all of you. I'm always glad when we can be together. But we talk to each other, right? Outside of that, we wouldn't be able to communicate out the messages that we're talking about here. We could just talk to each other. And that there's a loss there. Um, that's the kind of speech that the First Amendment is supposed to protect. But because there's a private platform aspect to all of this, private platforms want to get rid of that content. I hate to be all free marketer. They can get rid of it right now. They don't, they don't need 230 to go away. But by getting rid of 230, you're, you're telling the platforms they have to get rid of this content. And even, even platforms, big ones, are going to be very reluctant 
to allow the a level quantity and type of speech that's occurring now to continue to occur. And if you're just tuning in, want to let listeners know that we're talking about Section 230 because lame duck President Trump appears to have uh, shifted the balance of power on the FCC in favor of uh, tossing out this uh, lesser known piece of of uh, internet regulation in in the beginning of the 2021. And it sounds like we may see um, a policy change at the FCC prior to Joe Biden's chair of the FCC taking taking over that body. Well, and, and to play this out, I think the concern here, Chris, if I, if I understand, is that uh, that the still uh, Republican-led FCC uh, plans to meet in early January prior to the change of administration where it could uh, put out these advisory rules on the interpretation of Section 230. At that point, uh, the transition of the administration, Chairman Pai will take his, his leave. It will become a 2-2, two, two, uh, Democrat, two Democrats to two Republicans, and then it will require the installation of the third Democrat likely to be the new chair uh, in order for that uh, order to be, to be rescinded essentially, right? The FCC could turn around and a new FCC can, can turn around and take it away. Just like uh, the Ajit Pai FCC turned around and undid the open internet order from the Obama administration. The question though, of course, as you sort of pointed out is that whether or not uh, the Mitch McConnell led Senate will will approve, will, will move forward in, 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 in any sort of expeditious manner at all to help, uh, you know, Joe Biden put in that new FCC chair because uh, the FCC commissioners have to be right. um, authorized and by the And we're Senate. presuming an outcome of a, of a special election in Georgia that should be uh, between now and then <laughs> to shift the balance well, of power potentially in the Senate. The power actually shifts. The balance of power actually shifts either way because um, uh, Commissioner Rosenworcel's term is up at the end of next year. And even in a Democratic administration, if the Republicans won't let uh, nominations go through the Senate, uh, you would have a 2-1 FCC that leans Republican under a Democratic administration. Hmm. That's entirely a feasible possibility uh, in about a year's time. Well, so that's interesting. That leads us to, I think, our next topic, because right now uh, the FCC has filed briefs is due to be in front of the Supreme Court to defend its record of of relative inaction uh, with regard to, to media ownership rules, which um, it is required by law, by the Telecommunications Act of 1996, to review and periodically update. Um and, and one of the things that the, the, the effects of this has been is we've seen this precipitous drop in uh, ownership by minorities and women. So, so you know, in, in, the, in that time period since the passage of the Telecommunications Act, at a time when it seems like the culture at large and society at large has focused increasingly on, on democratizing and leveling out opportunities for, for minorities and women, uh, we've seen an actual backwards trend in the ownership of our broadcast media, something which ostensibly the, the FCC is supposed to address, but instead is, is mostly focused on um, sort of finding ways that they can pretend to address it while also allowing for more consolidation, loosening rules. And that's my, that's my overall gloss. And, and, and so doing so has been in front of the, th- uh, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals um, in a challenge, I'm sorry, the Fourth Circuit 
Court of Appeals. So. Third Circuit, four times. I'm sorry. Okay. So in so doing, the, the FCC has been in front of the Third Circuit Court of Appeals four times, uh, facing a challenge brought by a group of public interest groups uh, led by the Prometheus Radio Project, most well known for helping to facilitate uh, the, the establishment and growth of low-power FM community radio in the United States. Um, and each time, the court has basically said to the FCC, you have, you have failed to materially justify the changes you want to make. Right. And you failed to justify that they, will, that they will actually have an effect of diversifying ownership, and they actually fail to diversify and this, this has been a, ownership. this has been a back and forth in the court battle that spanned how many administrations, how many FCCs has this involved, Christopher? The the first court decision was in 2004. So you have a Bush administration, uh, all of the Obama administration, and then this administration. And yeah. I, I hope that at some point in this uh, next segment we can talk about uh, what is the FCC like when when the executive branch changes hands? I mean, maybe well, we can pull yeah, that into but, this but conversation. I, I, yeah, I, I do want to – you know. so I want to sort of note here is, is that – you know, so this this challenge has been been accepted by the Supreme Court with the FCC challenging the Third Circuit's decisions uh, going on now uh, sixteen some years. Um, That's a new wrinkle. It hasn't gotten this, to that level yet. No, this is this is this is a new wrinkle, and it has not gotten to that level yet. Um, but also, I wonder, you know, that with the changing of the administration, I mean, let's. Could a Democratic-led FCC decide to drop the suit? No. <laughs> okay. Um, the oral arguments will be on January 19th, mm. just ahead of Inauguration Day, uh, which is also coincidentally the day before Ajit Pai will leave the commission. Uh, not coincidentally, I'm sure. So the Third Circuit has you, – you suggested that the FCC was supposed to consider uh, ownership by women and minorities as part of its overall assessment that it's required to do by law. That's uh, not entirely accurate. Right. The FCC was ordered to do that by the Third Circuit in 2004, 2011, uh, 2016, and 2019. Uh, as part of the remands of what is still basically the uh, decision, in some ways, that was made by the FCC back in 2003. So 1996 Telecommunications Act's hands down new authority to the FCC to enforce new ownership rules. The FCC begins to implement those rules, fundamentally altering the environment for broadcast radio in the, in the country. And uh, in the span of seven years, man manages to run up uh, consolidation at an unbelievable rate that costs a lot of women and minorities who were often single station operations who just sold out to the larger companies that were being formed. Uh, the FCC gets to a point to where it actually has empirical evidence that it can't defend the policy it's spent the last seven years implementing. So it comes up with a new metric, right, that actually fails math. And that challenge was brought uh, in multiple districts uh, in response to a June 2003 FCC order over the diversity index. Uh, the case was filed in multiple districts, and uh, it ended up in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, where the Prometheus Radio Project was the lead plaintiff. That's how they became the head of a 
very large and diverse group of citizen petitioners, as they're known in the case. And, and that's because Prometheus is based in Philadelphia, right. and that is the, uh, the the circuit in Philadelphia. That's where they filed their challenge. The lottery sent the case to the Third Circuit, and that's where it has remained uh, for four go-rounds um, in which the FCC has made a policy decision, and it has been tested in court, and it didn't work out. Then after they lo- the FCC lost a second time, they basically violated the law and didn't finish an open proceeding. They rolled it into a second proceeding. And only when the industry and the citizen petitioners agreed to agree and disagree at the same time, but they agreed to drag the FCC kicking and screaming back into court in April of 2016 uh, because both of them wanted to see the agency actually do something after not having done anything for basically eight years. Uh, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals told the FCC they had to resolve that situation. And in August of 2016, after not having completed a media ownership proceeding for eight years, the FCC decided to do nothing to its rules. It just kept all of the rules it said it had and said that the record supported keeping all of the rules that were currently on the books. And before that could be challenged in court, but even after there were cases pending, but before they could be heard, uh, the presidential term switched over. Ajit Pai took command of the, uh, or took control of the FCC. And in 2017, based on exactly the same evidence that they had used to say that all the rules should be remained, they said, well, we don't think that's the case anymore. There is no new evidence in the record to suggest any other changes. Just ideologically changed the rules. And that is the challenge that will now go to the Supreme Court on January 19th. Uh, the merits briefs for the uh, um, the petitioners, those are the uh, the broadcast industry folks, and as well as the uh, friend of the court briefs, the amicus briefs, are all in on the uh, on the industry side. Their argument is is that minority ownership shouldn't factor into any sort of equation that the FCC is required to engage in. Um, the merits briefs from the citizen petitioners are in uh, this week. And their argument is, is that this is a straight administrative law case that the FCC, to refer back to what Matthew was talking about earlier when we were talking about 230, the FCC didn't follow any of the necessary procedures or even have a rational result from um, the decisions that it's made and that the Supreme Court should remand this back to the Third Circuit so the Third Circuit can uh, tell the FCC to go fix it. Arbitrary and capricious behavior. That is the, uh, the very administrative law phrase that we like here. Um, the industry briefs, though, are uh, kind of interesting. They're one of the significant arguments that is made by the NAB, as well as several of the, uh, um, the friend of the court briefs, is that the FCC has taken too long and it's actually hampered broadcast industry's ability to continue to do business while these rules have been suspended and tied up in court for this amount of time. And of course, the FCC really liked that argument, except that the most important fact that doesn't get really discussed except in the merit brief filed by the uh, by Prometheus this week, is that the main reason this has been tied up is that the FCC hasn't followed the rules and hasn't done what it was told to do at any point. But more damning, I think, is the idea that the FCC could have resolved this. Uh, even before Ajit Pai was out of office, when they lost in October of 2019, they tried to take the decision from the DC from the Third Circuit up to the full panel of the Third Circuit, an en banc review, that's called. And uh, that takes time. It didn't take very long for the uh, full panel of the Third Circuit to tell the FCC to pound sand. 
But then the FCC went to the Supreme Court. And instead of doing what it should have done and what it was ordered to do at the time, which was to complete the open and still pending 2018 quadriennial review of its rules. So it's quite disingenuous what the industry is saying, although I understand their argument. They're concerned that this process has continued to uh, delay. But from the FCC's perspective, they had an opportunity to do something about this uh, over the last two years and chose literally not to, um, as they had done uh, between 2010 and 2014, where they were actually forced to merge two four-year reviews that they were unable to complete, which they never would have actually completed had it not been for the fact that the court made them actually do something about that on a timely manner. But the case is, uh, the case is interesting. Um, the FCC and NAB filed this week for... Uh, they filed a part of a petition that they are separate arguments, so they'll each be given some of the petitioner side to make their own arguments. Uh, there were some people that were surprised about that. I really wasn't. I think the NAB's argument is very similar to, but structurally different than the FCC's argument in this case. Um, but the uh, the the real surprise was just how direct the Prometheus. Uh, merits brief was, which uh, is really making this not necessarily about media ownership, but just about basic administrative procedure that involves media ownership. And that really changes the face of this case. Now, we haven't seen all of the supporting briefs from the side that supports Prometheus. We won't see those till uh, the end of next week. Um, And I know from communications I've had with people involved in that process that some of those will focus more on the diversity issue. But the diversity issue doesn't play big in the in the arguments that Prometheus is making in the case. Their argument is, is that the FCC didn't follow procedure, and the only people that we have to blame for that is not the Third Circuit, but the FCC. And frankly, I think it's a really good argument. Um, as I have been on this program, and I've written and talked about this topic extensively over the years, um, that's a really good argument. The FCC never has done what it was told to do or followed any sort of basic procedure. And I think the Prometheus folks are probably going to prevail on that argument. And and one of the reasons, you know, we, we talk about this here at Radio Survivor, you know, where, where much of what we focus on is community media, college media, grassroots media, you know, whether it's radio, podcasting, all sorts of different uh, sound platforms, is because even though it's principally principally the commercial broadcasters who are uh, who are lobbying in support of, of the FCC in this particular case, who principally are looking for opportunities for additional consolidation, for the ability to get bigger in some cases um, and, and, and build out their already very large uh, footprints uh, across uh, the broadcast spectrum. You know, and, and, and it would seem like, well, you know, that that doesn't affect uh, folks in in community media but or college it's the same media. it is the same media landscape and we know that right. even though community media college radio non-commercial radio uh functions with a different economic model it doesn't function in a different economic system it, we're it, it's all still the same country and the same dollar and and what happens to the big boys uh affects the small fry and big boys can be regional players uh it is it is plausible that a large public radio organization could actually be hemmed in currently by ownership rules. 
um, you know, and not be able to further grow out um, its network of stations um, or a, uh, you know, a religious broadcaster, which could which also operates, you know, many operate in non-commercial terms. Um, could be hemmed in by those terms. And, and as we've charted many times here on Radio Survivor, and Jennifer, you've reported on many times, it's often uh, public radio organizations that acquire the licenses of colleges, right, uh, that come in, you know, as a way, you know, for colleges that, that are yeah, looking public, to, to public and themselves. religious radio networks mm-hmm. are often, often the folks who, who end up buying college radio frequencies when they end up on the market. You know, and Chris, I don't know if you know this offhand because I didn't ask you to, before to look into this. I mean, did, does uh, does NPR have National Public Radio, which I believe is a member of the National Association of Broadcasters, um, have, have they have they filed a brief? Is there is there are they a signatory to anything? Not that I'm aware of. Um, the NAB generally has a brief, but they are actually one of the petitioners in the case. They're actually right. one of the parties to the case. So in that way. Most of the most of the friend of the court briefs, the amicus briefs that came from the industry side were actually from people who stand to benefit if the 2017 rules or something similar to those would be implemented. People like Gray and Nexstar and Sinclair. Um, Sinclair didn't and actually. The, these are mostly brief. television owners, correct? Yes. In fact, yeah. uh, television is is actually become um, very much the dominant player in this argument. Even though the part of the dispute in this particular version of this case, the one that's going to the Supreme Court, is over the FCC's incubator policy, which was the FCC's nominal uh, minority ownership policy, which was designed to allow uh, stations to or gr- station groups to dump their low end properties in favor of a license in another market. Um, I'm laughing sort because of a trade up. the the word incubator is such a buzzword from the last decade. It's 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 already so outdated that yeah. You mean you mean in terms of like Silicon Valley startups yeah. and venture how, capital? How dare they use the word incubator in any way? <clears throat> the this issue has lingered a very long time. I don't agree with what the FCC has done. There's no secret to that. But I'm not unsympathetic to the the broadcaster position that they need a little clarity here, right? This has been tied up for a long time, and it needs resolution. I disagree. On, I disagree with them on what that resolution should be, but they are operating in an environment where many of them are. They have waivers that are about to expire, right? Um, waivers and, uh, for, that that have allowed them for a time to own stations over the limit in in, in regional markets in anticipation that the rules would be changed. Yeah. Right, the FCC has done that many times in this in the twenty four years since the Telecommunications Act, and for a while that was actually not a bad system. It allowed mergers to occur before the properties became sort of out of market priced. And the broadcasters benefited greatly from the ability to make merger decisions on their own timelines with the anticipation that the rules are going. But even the Fox stations in major markets, in some cases, are over the limits and the waivers are about to expire. So the broadcasters, I mean, they have a point. Their their resolution to that point, I disagree with. But they do have a point that the FCC has kind of left them out on uh, a cliff here in many ways. So... While I disagree with their solution to the problem, I I, I am very supportive of their, their mm-hmm. contention that there needs to be a solution. 
And I see a parallel here, Chris. I, I, I want you to to to, uh, to tell me if I'm if I'm on base or not, because I mean we actually had a similar kind of disclarity around indecency rules, right? You know where uh, you know Bono using the F word fleetingly on the uh, during an award ceremony live Again, on television. Wasn't that like 15 years ago? <laughs> Yes, but nevertheless, it doesn't matter. It's fifteen years ago. It's relevant. Um, you know, uh, became uh, you know brought in the affiliates who aired that in for uh, for being fined by the FCC. You know, and for the argument being, well, you know, you know, fleeting indecency, especially in in, in cases in which the broadcaster can barely be expected to to, to monitor or regulate. Um, you know, how is that the same as something which might be more uh, outrightly adult or pornographic, right? Um, and, and, and I know having, you know, worked in community uh, radio and college radio that the, 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 the threat of, of fines, even though, as you noted, they were never as, as numerous as, as, um, as perhaps people feared, you know, loomed always large, you know, over, especially over smaller stations because – because in, in many ways, it was very unclear what the actual standard was and, and where what was the line at which some, something was, was merely a little ribald yeah. or a, a double and entendre in, and at what point it was finable. Yeah, and in some cases, I think that ends up limiting free speech in a way because um, some stations end up becoming more conservative because they're afraid of these vague, the vagaries of what is indecent. Well, and even though indecency is really sort of a, a dead regulation at the FCC, after the Golden Globes case, the FCC implemented the fleeting expletives that was thrown out uh, across the Fox TV cases, which wrapped up in 2012. And that was the Supreme Court, correct? The Supreme Court threw that out. Yeah, basically um, said that, 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 that it was capricious, essentially, and that there wasn't a sufficient definition. Um, which is ironic because the definition was actually fairly clear in in that case but it was but it, it was, was sort just, of almost re- it was almost right. retroactive though right i mean yeah it, <laughs> it was. wasn't as if it wasn't as if there was a standard which everyone was expected to 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 hear he too so much as that retroactively in, in instituting the fine they set a new standard or yeah. fully refined a new standard so the fcc in april of 2013 came up with what they call the egregious standard which allows them to find subjectively in in really uh expansive situations hasn't been enforced just a couple of times uh you know, the details of which are irrelevant, but the, uh, the three cases that, you know, that have been brought under the egregious standard, none of them have been tried in court, but that is not to say that indecency is gone. Uh, the FCC got more than 1800 complaints about indecency that was in the, ironically enough, the 2020 Super Bowl halftime show this year, even though there was no actual indecent act, they still get thousands of complaints about indecency in a year. They just don't enforce it. And to to get to your parallel, um, the FCC has not done its job on media ownership. Whether I agree with their decisions or not is 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 one thing. Well, but and, it's and also inarguable. The, and my parallel is that the broadcasters are left, as you were saying, are left right. with this sort of. Uh, Having to 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 gauge risks uh, that that maybe need not be quite so risky, if you will, uh, because of the lack of clarity. We we have right. to wrap this uh, radio program up in three minutes. We can continue on the podcast. I'm wondering if Christopher Terry, if you can um, uh, wrap, you know, give, bring things full circle to talk about uh, what is what is possible under a new Biden administration with the FCC, as well as. 
this new Congress that is coming in um, regarding everything that we've been talking about today in, on, in, in, in three minutes. Three minutes. <laughs> sure, I can, I can do it in three minutes. I was ready to All right, here we go. Number one, the FCC has to resolve the remand from the Mozilla decision, uh, the repeal of net neutrality decision. It has uh, three standing remands it has to re- resolve in that. It did not. These, these are things the court that. told it to, to go yeah. look at again. That's what a remand uh, is. The, uh, it will have a significant issue in dealing with the state preemption uh, cases. Some of those will, will hit court next year. So that's and that's, that's and that's the states establishing their own uh, rules right. for network neutrality, which the FCC says they should not be able to do. Right. The FCC will have to decide what to do about the 2018 proceeding, whether regardless of what comes out of the Supreme Court, they've got to complete that because they have another one to do in 2022. And that's the so ownership to, proceeding. Ownership proceeding. They've got to finish that. Um, there is some question about whether or not broadcast indecency uh, needs to be reviewed this year. Um, that's actually on the table, ironically, as we talked about it today. Uh, but the FCC is most concerned right now with, uh, trying to get broadband grants out. And, uh, one thing that, uh, COVID has definitely put bear on is the fact that here we are, uh, nearly 4,000 days since the national broadband plan was handled down. And we still don't have universal broadband in this country in a time where we really could use it. And there's a lot of movement in Congress to put some pressure on the FCC to get those problems fixed. They're well overdue to be fixed. And I, I really think if we have a full commission, and one of the incentives for Republicans to put a full commission together is to really buckle down and get those broadband grants made, especially for muni broadband, that's going to be a big issue in the next two years, definitely. And by muni, you be municipal. And, broadband. of course, yeah. all of this is – as as I've learned by, from talking to you, Dr. Christopher Terry, about the FCC, is that if Congress actually passes legislation about any of these issues, it uh, it sort of makes what the FCC has been uh, struggling with or fighting over uh, a much more small potatoes because when Congress acts, uh, the whole policy framework shifts. So, you know, it, potentially a, a, a U.S. Congress could could uh, improve or, or I guess I should add um, – ruin the media landscape in any way it chooses uh, as a as part of our legislative process the agency could use some direction regardless of what that direction is it could do its job better if congress told it what it actually wanted it to do remember most of the rules that we talked about today were based in the 1996 telecommunications act and congress has given them no real uh direction since then the internet broadcasting cable satellite Cellular technology all have evolved substantially since 1996, and the FCC's kind of been stumbling around in the dark. Uh, it doesn't excuse the behavior that the FCC's engaged in over the last 10 years, but it definitely explains part of it, at least. Great. Well, that's. I think we can now enter into the podcast uh, uh, landscape and, and stretch our legs a little bit. It's so. I just want to mention that it seems. I mean, I made fun of how your Bono example uh bono saying a, a bad word on tv is so old but i think it is important to mention that in the preceding uh, decade and a half since bono said a bad word on tv like kids can watch twitch and hear oh right anything yeah. <laughs> compared to you know it, the idea that 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 this one slice of the media landscape needs to be controlled by the Federal Communications Commission when Netflix and YouTube and Twitch and, and everything else um, 
uh, has. But, you, has but free, remember uh, that, that the Communications Decency Act, which itself, the majority of which uh, was overturned, um, which from which we we derived Section Two Thirty, right? That whole act was intended to implement that kind of regulation online, and it, it failed. Right, it failed in the courts, but that it was there intended to do so. So that was a fork in the road, and a very important fork in yeah. the road, uh, where where it was going to be that the that the internet would be much more like broadcast, or uh, would be very different from broadcast. Is, is that gloss well, uh, relatively correct? No, no, it, it's. Uh, <laughs> Reno v. ACLU, which is the case that overturned the, C- the most of the CDA, not all of it, yeah. is decided in 1997. The internet looks a lot different in 1997 than it does in 2021 here. Uh, and importantly, that's one of the really important reasons that the case comes out the way that it does. Court looks at the internet in 1997 and says, well, it looks a lot like a newspaper to us. Yeah. <laughs> we treat newspaper one way, we treat broadcasting another. It doesn't look like broadcasting to us. It actually looks like newspaper, right? Because, because I mean, at, the at the time, time it, it was mostly text, right? There was, was no no streaming, streaming radio video. was yeah. new. Uh, podcasting hadn't been invented. The, uh, streaming video was, was barely possible. Yeah, Do you exactly. know what the number one audio platform was in 1997 on the web? Broadcast.com? AOL? Real audio. Oh, real, real audio. Well, as, audio. as a broadcast. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so as, as the uh, mechanism, as the, yeah. uh, uh, you know, uh, yes, that was definitely true. Which so, I mean, that's, that's, that's the time that we're talking about, right? I mean, yeah. it. you know, the internet looked fundamentally different. If that case came up under basically the same facts, but 10 years later, it comes out radically different. Matthew, I want to bring you in. Radically uh, different. Matthew, I wonder if there's any way that we can uh, have you and Christopher have a conversation about this um you know we've spent we spent the hour really wrapped up in in a lot of 21st century uh policy questions and i'm wondering if there's anything to be gained by by looking farther back at at um how this has all evolved well i keep i unfortunately i'm just keep looking forward one of the questions i have you know it's going to be a whole procedure proceeding within the federal trade commission over facebook and Google, and all of these things. And I'm a little worried that that's going to really eclipse these very important issues that you're talking about now. That that's going to get a lot of the headlines, and that's going to get a lot of... That's going to, and, and I think it's really important um, for all of us to figure out ways, to, form, to formulate ways. I mean, aside from Section 230, I'm talking about the ownership questions. It's important to formulate arguments for the public about why this is important, too, why this is still important, and why this is as important as who owns all of these social media platforms. And I guess that's my next question to you, Chris. Well, the the historical uh, way to explain it would be what happened uh, when the 1996 Telecommunications Act was passed. We allowed a horizontal and vertical integration uh, of media platforms and program producers. And that was a substantial reduction in diversity and viewpoint and access to information right there, just because you limited the number of people who were actually producing content and distributing it, right? It's one thing to talk about Clear Channel's 1,300 radio stations that they own, 1,346 radio stations that they own, you know, whatever. It's something else to talk about the fact that Clear Channel's production arm was distributing content to half of all radio stations in the United States in the late 90s. I mean, they they 5,000 stations a day in the United States, more than five. More than 5,000 stations a day were getting their content from Clear Channel. That's really a big deal. 
And it's not hard to see that that entities the size of Google and the size of Facebook and some of the others are going to want to get in on the content business. And if you need a model to understand this, look at Disney, right? AT&T, right? Time Warner, all the others. They started staking out their turf, not over delivering the content, but the content itself. Because the content has a lot of value. That is why Disney laid down $6 billion for the Star Wars franchises, right? That's why they laid out all the money for the Marvel franchises. Because there's an insane amount of content that can be produced from that that then they own. And Disney, lacking a distribution method, has to make its money selling content. It's not going to be long before Facebook and the others decide that the way to do the best amount of business that they can is not only to own Facebook, but to own the people who are actually producing the content as well. That has not really happened yet, right? It really isn't the model that we've seen for the internet, but it is very quickly moving in that direction. And ironically, if 230 goes away, you're actually going to provide the impetus for that in that those companies are going to need... Uh, content to replace the content that they can't have anymore, right? Facebook's not going to be able to let you just talk about anything they want. They're going to need content that drives you to that website. We have to... They're going to have a... They need more content, and they're going to do what happened with cable back in the late 90s, where they're going to buy up the people who are producing the content. Unless unless the federal government breaks up big tech. I mean, that's the alternate version, right? I mean... Things have think we've we've gone through now. What I don't know how many years of consolidation and media ownership uh, is. I mean that it's not politically impossible to imagine a world that's got more diversity of of uh, you know. The, or I think what I mean what Matthew was bringing up is the idea that um, they're they're starting a a battle over breaking up Facebook. Antitrust regulation is not going to break those companies up in a meaningful way. Facebook and Instagram are one company. If you make them two companies, they're still going to collaborate. Yeah, but but can that block this? uh, I don't know. It's it's theoretical and exciting to think of. uh, Antitrust regulation just isn't very effective in doing the things that people want it to do. It takes a long time. Yeah. That's part of it. But you've also then provided a mechanism for the smaller companies to collaborate, not necessarily be the same house. But then to, if you take Facebook and Instagram as the two easy examples, you break them into two companies, you've now given them a reason to continue to expand, right? Now each of them needs more stuff. So they are more likely to expand than they may have been even as the big entity. And that's, I mean, setting aside the difficulty and actually going in and trying to break up these companies on an antitrust ground, that's one thing in itself. But you have to ask yourself whether that's actually better than having these huge companies. And because the secondary effects of that are that you're going to encourage those broken up entities to go out and buy more stuff. Right. I actually, and sort of like the 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 ongoing. I mean, we're experiencing the ongoing effects of the breakup of AT and T. Effectively, I mean, right. the the current day AT and T, which was you know Bell South, wasn't it? Um, is really where all the, the phones, were. right? All the phones. Verizon, Verizon is the you know the modern incarnation of of nine X and New York Telephone, et cetera. Um, and then you have a few other stragglers about the country, like CenturyLink, um, you know, and you know. 
sure it's a duopoly of sorts, but <laughs> but it's you know, but also the stakes are very different because at this point, you know, uh, Verizon is a content producer, AT and T is HBO, right? I mean, and and it, 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 I can see how you have these unintended effects from from that breakup you know, which happened, uh, you know, 40 years ago. But didn't it lower uh, long-distance calling rates? Isn't that, wasn't that the point? <laughs> or is that oversimplifying things? That's a it little, one little bit of an oversimplification. It was one part of the point. Right. No, I mean, it had some, it had some effects. I mean, it's what I think actually allowed the Internet to grow um, from home and modems and things like this, uh, which otherwise were difficult to, to attach to the system. There's all sorts of arcane rules attached to having an actual – and, of course, that was a, a, a truly federally blessed monopoly, not merely a monopoly that just sort of uh, came together through sheer market power. But anyway, it's my, I'm just trying to sort of agree with, with Christopher about the sort of unintended effects, right? And that, you know, sometimes the devil, you know, the devil you know <laughs> is, is, is the devil you, you, you might prefer. I get accused of standing up for some of those companies by saying, you know, we ought to be very cautious about doing the antitrust aspects. But it really comes down to the devil and the details rather than the devil that you know. How you do a breakup is maybe more important than whether or not you actually do the breakup. What restrictions you put on those companies moving forward. The Federal Trade Commission has already brought Facebook and Google to its knees on privacy issues many times, right? It has the power to control those entities in the current environment. The impetus to break them up, of course, is that they are, because they are so big, they are fairly anti-competitive, especially for startups. But that's, you know, that's part of the structure that we have. You have to ask whether they're more anti-competitive as one very large entity or are they more anti-competitive as several smaller entities that are all colluding. (laughs) And that, I mean, you know, I I don't, I'm not going to stand up for big tech. It it has its problems, certainly. But you, you might be cutting off your nose to spite your face um, in some of those instances, right? And so, you know, it's not so much that it's a bad idea to do, it's it's how you do it that really ends up mattering. And I'm not convinced it can be done in a timely enough fashion to get the results that people want, but also in a way that puts enough conditions on the breakup that keeps it from being actually functionally worse five years down the road. And that's that's kind of scary. I'm not going to lie. Uh, that's not my most specific area, but there's a lot of parallels between breaking these companies up now and potentially the ability you're giving them to absorb other companies that we saw with uh, sort of the cable deregulation era at the end of the late 90s there. That was just a lot of – we didn't learn our lesson that time. We, we might learn it this time. I, why am I always so pessimistic? I know I really like you guys, but I always have to be such a jerk when I come here. <laughs> well, Chris, I, I know we're hitting about two. We're about twenty minutes after the hour. I got to get going here. You got to get going. So we really appreciate you, uh, Matthew. Can you stick around for just a few minutes? We sure, should, sure. Should, uh, listen, direct some things listen, your way. Here. Really great to hit, listen to you, um, Chris. Thank you so much for all that. So, Matthew. Um, I'm curious if you have any thoughts. And I know you weren't able to, to to join us for our look back at 2020. Yeah. And I know that that uh, teaching uh, hundreds of students online is 
is uh, as as you've been thrust into like so many uh, folks in academia. Is it's, hundreds it's even accurate? Oh my gosh! It's uh, yeah. I, I teach between seven hundred and nine hundred students. Yeah, so I would say so almost a thousand to to make it feel even even more um, weighty. Yeah, that's <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah. But does anything of, of this year stand out to you in, in that world of radio and sound and media that, uh, that you've had any chance to kind of reflect on? Well, um, I'm going to say something that I haven't really said um, to anybody for a while. But um, after Trump became president of the United States, I stopped listening to broadcast radio. I could not listen to his voice. And I simply stopped um, listening to I stopped I stopped listening to, to broadcast radio pretty much all the time. I also uh, put an app on my um, uh, an extension on my Google Chrome, which allowed me to kittenize pictures of Trump. It basically <laughs> basically it was a, re- a really in, in, ingenious device, which every time there was a um, a news picture of Trump on, on Google News, it would turn into a, a bunch of pictures of cute kittens. And I realized that that was kind of a <clears throat> a cowardly and emotional retreat kind of thing to do. But that was sort of where I was. I just did not want to listen to that man say things like, well, I happen to think, and all these, and, you know, and as far as, you know, this, this kind of, this, because I'm so, I, you know, I, I lived for New York City and New Jersey for half of my life, and I'm, I, I know what guys like Trump really sound oh, yeah, like. I know. Matthew, yeah. Matthew uh, so, what, so what stations were you listening, what kinds of stations were you listening I was, you know, to? I was, listening to, I was listening to National Public Radio. I was listening to the Pacific stations. I was listening to whatever I was, you know, I was listening. I stopped, I just, I, I tuned that out. Um, I be, I'm, I'm sort of a Spotify junkie, to be perfectly frank with you. I spend a lot of time listening to podcasts on Spotify. Um, a, a lot of them, his a lot, uh, 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 Is that bad? I guess it's bad. We, What's uh, that experience like? You know, Actually, I'm, I'm kind of curious. Uh, working and for a we, it gets us. <laughs> it gets yeah. It gets us into a fun and and a fun and difficult territory because Paul Reese Mandel, uh, through a series of mergers and acquisitions that were very exciting in the past two years, now works for one of Spotify's main rivals in the realm of big podcasting. But right. regardless of that, Eric yeah, Klein... Matthew, did, you, did, you, did, you, did you catch that? Did you see that happen? Um, that my company was acquired by SiriusXM uh, uh, in October? Um, I hadn't followed that. <laughs> yeah, well, so welcome. I, now, I, am now an, I am now an employee of SiriusXM Radio, and, uh, but also in the family is Pandora. Right. So uh, where I uh, per- so I'm working right. very closely now with with well as you as you know I used to follow that stuff all the time oh yeah I know, yeah um, I know this is your meat but so the reason I boo that stuff is because then, it's difficult I mean it's impossible for Paul to talk about the industry stuff um, because of the thorny nonsense of conflicts and it's no fun anymore but also without Paul Reismandel's life experience just Eric Klein's uh, reading of the industry, uh, and I, I gave Spotify money, and I wish I hadn't uh, many years ago to enjoy their product, to stream their music. I love the music, and I love streaming music uh, based on this beautiful app. But their activity as a business in the podcast world is uh, gross. <laughs> it's no fun. It's bad in lots of ways, and I could make a list. But that's all. I just wanted to give my emotional response to um, plugging that particular. Well, I'll app. never listen to Spotify ever again. 
It's okay. Um, it's a lot. It has uh, a lot more. You know, I, I, and I, if it's any if it's any constellation, I also listen. I mean, basically, I got my iPhone. I stick my iPhone in my car. I turn on either the podcast thing or the or the Spotify thing, and I listen to the various and sundry podcasts um, that are, that are around. Is there um, a podcast that 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 has got your attention right now? Is there something you th- that, that that you're well, Scott? I listen to. to, to? I, I teach a course on conspiracy theory, yeah, so right. I listen to. I listen to like Skullduggery. Um, uh, there's a, there's a podcast about spies, about historical spies that I um, listen to a lot. I listen to a bunch of true crime um, podcasts, and I have to tell you that um, they're a mixed bag. A lot of them. <laughs> yes. Um, one of the pro- one of the biggest problems with a lot of them is is that it takes so long for their hosts to warm up. I mean, it's like. They're the they're just it's it's the chit chat effect where they just go on and on and on about all kinds of things that have nothing to do with the yeah. podcast. There it's, was it was one. I wish that they pod- would work in radio a little bit to know that they're supposed to hit the microphone hot with the thesis statement of the day and move on quick to that topic. It's not therapy. Your podcast is not. <laughs> it's not like. It's yeah. It's not. It's not. Your podcast listeners are not your therapist. They don't need to know about your problems at the top but of the now, show. But now, the other thing I want to say is, is that now that um, Trump is um, on the way out, you know, he's uh, you know, clearly on the way out, even clearly to you know, a large portion of the Republican Party at this point, I have slowly but surely begun Church listening radio. again to, broad, to, broad, to broadcast radio. And I can tolerate his voice as long as I know that he's going to be gone soon. Right, um, right. And that he's going to... He's going to go to Mar-a-Lago, or then where he's going to go after He's going to go to um, right-wing talk radio. He's going to be on the radio constantly. Don't you no, think he's going to be... He'll probably found his t- own... I mean, this is t- what, I thought he was going to do this um, previously when he lost. I thought he was just going to go found some <laughs> new <laughs> media network. Well, what, what, I, what I'm looking forward to is I'm looking forward to him pissing off a lot of the other right-wing talk um, um, uh, media hosts um, as he takes market away from them. Or takes some market <laughs> away from them, and that they they don't like him anymore um, because he's just basically become a become a competitor. I, I'm hope I'm hoping that that's what happens. And and I want to make a recommendation to you, Matthew, but to everyone here. Uh, and, and this is this is broadcast radio, uh, but it's online because uh, their signals don't reach as far. Is to definitely tune in to Radio New Zealand National. Hmm. And my recommendation is on weekend nights. Now, of course, they're an entire day ahead of us, so that that begins Thursday. They have the most eclectic national music programming that you could possibly expect to hear. So, I think I've written about that on Radio Survivor. F- yeah, maybe uh, you have. Uh, Friday uh, nights. Some years ago. Which yes, is Thursday root, here on the West Coast. kind of a mix of roots music and, um, and indigenous it's, stuff. No, it's. I mean, they have that as well. They have programs like that. Their 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 weekend night programming on Friday nights. It's always themed, so it's mm-hmm. things about water. Was last night is mm-hmm. what I was listening to, but I heard Nick Cave followed by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, interspersed with all these uh, movie dialogue snippets. Right, so it sounded like very well produced community radio, effectively. But this is the national broadcaster. Right. On Saturday nights, so Friday nights here in the, in in North America, and because of the way our time zones interact, it's it's best during um, during our winter when they're on summer. So they're an hour ahead, we're an hour behind, and so we meet up. 
it'll just a three hour difference. So beginning at uh, 10 o'clock uh, Pacific time, they have a national request, all request show. Mm. And so it's, you know, and they, and they take the requests on the phone. I think they take them on Facebook. But again, it's crazy eclectic and the host wry commentary, very wry, very dry commentary on everything is amazing. And, and I came to this. I, I may have told this anecdote to, to Jennifer and Eric and, and the podcast listeners, but I'll tell you, Matthew, is that I was in New Zealand back in um, in January, the end of January. So it was my last you know overseas trip uh, before COVID times, and I, I just so happened my Airbnb was right next door to RNZ National, <laughs> literally in Wellington, and I didn't get a chance. I, I couldn't find a hookup to tour, and it was already they're getting skittish uh, a lot of places. So, but, but, but I, you know, it caused me to just tune in cause I was right there and I had a radio and that's where I got turned on to the, to sort of the eclectic, um, evening programming that now I try to tune in. It's, it's more difficult when it's our summer and their winter cause then we're about five hours apart. And so the, that programming doesn't really begin till midnight our time. And that's Matthew, you probably, for me. I don't know if you had a chance to hear Paul's reporting on New Zealand public radio, but we learned some really fascinating oh, community radio, uh, yeah. community the, radio, right, the community radio in New Zealand. Um, one, they are uh, flabbergasted that community radio in the United States has to fundraise on the air. Right, that's fact. Factoid yeah, they're, they're one. government funded. They're government funded and commercial. So they they usually survive on a combination of government funding. Some of them run commercials, and then uh, the 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 community the broadcasters themselves usually have to pay a fee. And it depends station to station. So in Wellington, which is one of the biggest and oldest, um, they survive principally on the government grant and uh, on the fees from the broadcasters. And usually the, the, it's called community access radio, so it's much more like community ra- like, like public access television uh, runs in the United States, in Wellington at least. Right. And but so that means, like, say, ac- the Maori community fundraises for their segment to, right. to, to, to sponsor their programming. But you taught us through this interview that we aired earlier in the year, I think, was it February? That it's, been, yeah. it's public access model – but also there's a government mandate for how the public access is doled out. Mm. The, the diversity mm-hmm. is uh, – Yeah, there are different sectors, right? Like isn't there yeah, a youth yeah. sector that's yeah. mandated? So, so you have all these yeah. sort of constituents that are yeah, represented. Some, and, and they're supposed to do surveys and, and they use population and census data to you know, know that they should dedicate so many hours to, to say the Samoan uh, diaspora, etc. Um, it was sort of a, a fascinating experience. So I was able to go and, and, and meet up with folks in community radio there in, um, in, in Wellington, which seems like so long ago that I could, you know. Yeah, last decade, a whole decade well, ago. Certainly still not permitted to go to New Zealand, even if I got on the airplane. So Well, and the, I mean, I like your, your recommendation of listening, too, because then it's um, every time we listen to a station that is in a faraway place or a place that we like to visit mm-hmm. it you know we feel transported like in our household yes. we'll listen to stations kzyx up in mendocino county we'll listen to their trading time weekend <laughs> show where it's like an on-air garage sale and, and so we feel like yeah. we're there driving around hearing about people offering up you know trades of um you know, eggs from their chickens and response, you know, in exchange for a ride to Santa Rosa. Um, and it, it's a little escape 
you know, tuning into these stations like that. Absolutely. Is there anything you're, uh, you know, going to be looking or that you're going to be paying attention to this coming year, Matthew, with regard to, to anything in our, in our little radio world? I, I have to tell you something. And that is, is that, um, I, um, you see, um, gave me a grant to create a, um, a completely online U basic U.S. history course, which filmed all of my lectures. Um, and they also gave me a bunch of media equipment. They gave me um, uh, Adobe Premiere and they gave me Final Cut Pro. And I sort of became addicted to making movies um, for my classes. And now I'm gonna do a massive online um, open conspiracy course. And I'm gonna make about seven or eight movies of myself talking about these things. And, and so this is like a MOOC, as they're known in, in yeah, education, in a massive and I'm online gonna, open course. And I'm gonna I'm gonna make um, I'm gonna make um, little little film MOOCs about um, famous issues in conspiracy. Who who really burned down the Reichstag in 1933 and how people have been arguing about this ever since and Where, stuff like that. Do you cut off prior to the like 2001? Do you stop? Um, do, you mean when do I stop talking about conspiracy theories? What date do I stop talking yeah. about conspiracy theories? Are you theories? going into the 9-11 truther zone and do well, you I'll, want you to know, touch I'll, QAnon? I'll do, the, I'll, do, I'll do the 9-11 truthers because um, that, has, that, that, that fever has at least somewhat sub subsided. Um, um, but I try and keep it no further than that. I do go all the way back to uh, the Dreyfus case and the protocols of the elders of Zion and things like that. Did we tell and you, so Matthew, about it was more than one year ago, so it doesn't fit into the 2020 framework, but Radio Survivor did an episode where we ran smack into the harp. Do you know harp? Uh, the harp, harp conspiracy theory? I don't know it, no. Yeah, up in, up in Canada... It's like a Alaska. Oh, had, Alaska. Okay, you can describe it because now I can't remember. It's like a they're um, it's weather monitoring, right? It was a government sponsored weather experiment that had some Pentagon funding. It's very late nineties, mid nineties conspiracy theory, and it the conspiracy uh, the reality is so dull, but the conspiracy theory is that the government was doing experiments to control the global weather system through HARP. And Jennifer produced an episode that was very beautiful and very exciting and very sweet about an artist who worked in... Yeah, she's Canadian. Of, yeah, yeah, she's a sound artist. And, and she, was, she got a grant um, to go up and work with the scientists at HARP with the sound art project, but... Yeah, and her grant was she got the grant because she was attending a conference where the guy who ran Harp at the time was doing a public relations campaign to counteract all of the. I don't. I wanted to use a bad word to, to. I wanted to come up with a great noun to describe just how much bad misinformation that was dangerous and strange was flat. flooding. If you Googled this boring government lab you'd end up finding out that they were worse than any 
you know, globalist organization ever to, to be born. Controlling the weather, you know, but they were responsible for, for millions of weather-related deaths in, in the 21st century. And because of that, the guy who ran the lab was doing public relations and had developed a relationship with this sound artist, a radio artist, who then went on to do sound art, radio art. That Amanda Don Christie. Yeah, Amanda Don Christie that, ad- that addressed the conspiracy theories um, sideways. And then she herself became embroiled in the conspiracy theories. She had some individuals who had devoted their life's work to studying this, um, uh, in my opinion, fictional narrative of what Harp was all about. They roped her into it and started to come up with uh, explanations to as to her uh, Satanism. Exactly. Well, and yeah, and I think there, you know, there was some, there was some sense of, um, you know, feeling threatened by, you know, this underworld, can I say underworld of people who are conspiracists? And um, it was sort of upsetting to hear about an artist doing interesting artistic work, um, potentially being this target for, for, for people who, you know, may have meant her harm. Well, what I wanted to say um, before I um, uh, about the film thing is, is that um, I'm I'm hoping I'll have more time next year than I have uh, this year because I'm I'm trying to slow down a little um, and um, teach less. And one of the things I was um, wondering, Jennifer, is if you would be interested in my filming you um, and making a movie about you, <laughs> um, um, making a movie about you. In investigating radio stations, sure. So that it would basically be sort of you, you going into a radio station, and um, you know how does Jennifer Waits uh, review and um, explore a radio station, and it would be a radio survivor movie. That would be fun. I, I've been thinking about. It's been so long since I've been in a radio station even the radio station where I volunteer. And I mean, it almost, this year has felt so long. It feels like a lifetime ago that I was out touring radio stations and I visited so many, you know, it was right. like, what was the I'm, last station you went to Jennifer physically? Well, the, physically the last station, well, KFJC where I DJ, but then before of course, that, yes, of course. um, San Francisco public press, which I don't think I ever actually did a proper station tour post about it. Um, well, I'd like to make I'd like to make a film of you making a tour. That would be fun. I, I think I'm I, I think I'm good enough, at least with Final Cut Pro. And I can probably write some music. I was a, a music minor in college. I could probably write some music in GarageBand for it. Um, that we could have a, um, a a radio survivor joint that did that. Yeah. So what would what station would we tour? Well, that would be up to you. <laughs> mm, have First, to start plotting. Boy, yeah, I mean, what an amazing documentary because it might also be uh, the first time Jennifer Waits, professional radio station tourist, re-enters a building <laughs> filled with humans making radio. Yeah. I know. It's like Geraldo opening the vault or something. Yeah, but beautiful. <laughs> but beautiful and significant instead of... Uh, so I don't know papery. if this is podcast stuff that we're talking about here. I'm glad we're talking about it. But, but 
<laughs> you heard but it here first. You heard it here first. Yeah. Um, yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, that'd be great. I'm yeah, honored. I would love. I would love to see more. Uh, you know, Radio Survivor video content, of course. Um, some of our content is all right. People seem to like it. Um, I keep wanting to produce videos, but um, I'm uh, I I don't yeah. Oh my time. god. <laughs> I am I am exhausted from the uh, from the year right. that has been and uh, mergers and acquisitions. I consume I a, a short huge amount of YouTube as it's actually probably my primary media diet right now, um, and I actually love it. I I ran down the medium during the during the radio program because I don't want to say anything nice about large corporations in public. But um, I was thinking about how section was it section two thirty? How I just watched an incredible video two days ago about a gear review and he the gear reviewer with uh five you know with 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 tens of thousands of views in the first day the video was uploaded was uh very much going aggressively at uh behringer uh, as a company for its uh for for its corporate company that makes musical items mixers and yeah and i i i saw the same video yeah and i i mean that video is uh is enemy number one, right? Without the section two thirty. Uh, Behr- well, and also because Behringer is quite litigious right. that, to begin with. I didn't want to bring it up because it was way too niche. Yeah. But I was thinking about how right. uh, how very quickly YouTube's uh, uh, landscape of of tech review, gear review, and any sort of I mean, let alone it's yeah, I mean, consumer. Re- Consumer Reports, Chilling. right, has, has fended off many, many lawsuits over the years over their very, what they attempt to be very objective uh, reporting on and, and testing of consumer products uh, when manufacturers haven't been pleased with the results. Yeah, it's very terrifying. And, you know, and w- one last point, you know, Matthew, you mentioned how, you know, the podcast you're listening to, hosts often take a long time to get to the point, and I will, I will always give... Full credit to Eric, because it, is, it was his urging. He said that here at Radio Survivor, right, we need to get right to the point. And we, and we do, right, because I think that, that I certainly had a tendency to kind of lay back and be more podcasty and uh, want to BS and, and how you doing, whatever. Which I love. He, he, I, I want to do that, too. So, you know, we should pull back. Oh, I know you do. Yeah. No, we, but it was. No, I'm giving right. you lots of credit here by saying that, look, we need we owe the listeners this. Let them know what's going to happen and give it to them. Right. We right. tend and to do the BS. Here, I just wanted to let listeners know that we tend to do that prior to hitting record on. on the show because right. it's personal right. and it's valuable and we enjoy it. But it's not it's not the primary reason that we release our podcast. It's why we are friends. Well, and, and we're we doing relax, a, a syndicated radio show. So yeah. Right, yes. So we have um, we have to think about the stations that are airing our show. Yes. And it needs to be an hour long show that is constructed. But you you'd be surprised in a coherent how many, manner. because of this podcasting style and its ascension in the cultural landscape, how many radio producers that Posts do the same yeah, thing, it's yeah. all it's all I hear sometimes on certain stations, and it uh, makes yeah. me sad. Yeah, I, no. I have to say that the all credit for this idea that we should get to the point goes to my training as a volunteer and as a paid worker at KPFA. Right? You know, KPFA is a large broadcast uh, privilege to be on the air, and when you when you hit those airwaves, uh, you should know why you're there in the first five minutes you should tell the listener what you're going to do it's it's sort of part of you know the culture is that uh 
you know, you might meander and you might improvise, but at least at the top of the show, you you want to hit the ground running and and inform the listener of what what you plan right. to do. Right, and and it's also different in in sort of you know what we don't want to do is put a listener to one of the stations affiliate stations in the position of feeling like they have to turn off uh, that station, then pop potentially depriving the station of their ears for the following <laughs> yeah. program versus a podcast, which does not occur in linear time um, in the same way, which, you know, if they're tired of listening to us talk right now, they, they can just simply switch to the next podcast and they know they got their full hour. And then for the rest, if they're interested, they stay tuned. If not, they don't. Yeah. And that's when we, <laughs> you know, the end is when we're, that's when we stretch out doing more chit chat, letting our hair down, you know? Yeah. Um, right. The other observation I want to make about podcasts is, is that um, I've noticed that a lot of them are quite dark these days. Um, it, you know, um, everything is just like true crime, uh, the downfall of this person, the downfall of that person. I've been watching, listening to the Baron of Bo- the Baron of Botox um, uh, podcast, which is about the history of I've forgotten his name already, but he was this big Botox guy who killed himself, um, and this is a huge amount. This is true crime. Uh, conspiracies, debt, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer. I mean, you know, you yeah. can't, apparently you can't lose money doing a nine-part series about some mass murderer. It's the um, Penny Dreadful era of podcasting. It's, it's the public. Well, TV, too. We were scrolling through the things I had most recently TiVo'd to see, figure out what to watch last night, my husband and I, and everything was super dark, and he didn't want to watch any of it. So, you know, there's a lot of dark content being produced right now generally that's an interesting point i hadn't really thought about that um there's an there's another show um i forgot now the name of it there's a uh, there's a lot of shows um they did a an episode um about hollow earthers oh fine. there's also a there's also a lot of a lot of a lot of shows about people with strange beliefs and um so if you're into if you're into people with strange beliefs. Wait, now is this um, a, a true yeah. believer Hollow Earth podcast or a skeptical Hollow Earth podcast? It was a skeptical, but he was very good at um, he was very good at uh, at, at very accurately uh, explaining what Hollow Earth theory is all about. Um, and as I vaguely recall from my radio book, that there's a Hollow Earth radio. Right. Yeah, we station. love them. Station. Yeah, they're up in Seattle. Up in, um, up, in, up in Seattle, they were one of the pioneer. They're one of the pioneers of internet radio, actually, community-based internet mm-hmm. radio. Yeah. And, and now they're low power FM. Yeah. Now they got a low power FM grant, and now they're and they do they do community trading and all that that kind of stuff. I'm not sure that they really seriously believe in hollow earth up there, but <laughs> no, there's a lot of people. There's, I think it's, a lot I think of it's hipster who, ironism, right? Not, then, you know, who really believe in this stuff? You know, and so and so that just. There's just a lot of darkness out there in podcast land, it seems to me, and I think that's understandable. Dark given days, the, yeah. Given the given the circumstances under which we um we endure. Mm-hmm.